We've been in a sermon series for about the last five or six weeks that uh, has been oriented on spiritual preparation for our move, and I'm thrilled to say that we're moving on from that uh, series. We're pretending like this is all normal, like we've been here for a long time. We're, we're hoping nobody's going to tap us on the shoulder and say this is all a big mistake because uh, we're thrilled to be here. But in God's perfect timing, uh, we're settling in just as the height of the Christian calendar reaches us throughout the year. Palm Sunday uh, kicks off Passion Week. Passion getting its name from the Latin word for suffering. And in the days ahead, we'll remember the events of 2,000 years ago with sort of a split personality, with a swing of wild emotions because on one hand, it's celebratory. Easter Resurrection Day gives us far greater reason to give thanks, to worship the King than even Christmas morning. But on the other hand, in order to get to Easter, we need to walk through what we call uh, our Good Friday service, tracing the footsteps of the Savior. We need to walk through the realities of Christ's rejection and betrayal and arrest and trial and, of course, his suffering and death, both spiritual and physical. Today's paradox, today's passage points at the paradox at the heart of the gospel. Because victory will come through defeat, because power will be displayed most fully through weakness and glory through servanthood. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to glorify your name, Lord Jesus. 
cause this scene to become fresh and vivid in our hearts and minds that we might worship you, the risen King. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Uh, To help us walk through this passage, I'm going to ask a question in two parts and then provide an answer I believe comes from Scripture. First part of the question is, why would you praise Jesus? The first verse in our passage mentions a great crowd. Why were they there in Jerusalem? Pilgrims from all over the known world would have been uh, gathered in and around Jerusalem, causing the city to overflow for the annual Passover feast. It was a high time of Jewish nationalism because this wasn't simply a, a gathering, an excuse to get together. This wasn't um, simply sort of a, a, a ritual or a ceremony to go through. This Passover feast, once a year, was at the heart of the Jewish identity as a people. And so when they gathered together, there was a sense of rich nationalism, not unlike a country whose team is in the finals of the uh, Soccer World Cup. Not that we would know anything about that. Uh, or, or like Korean pride at the gathering of all of the nations in Pyeongchang at the recent Winter Olympics. This heightened sense of, of identity and people group. Sometimes persecution strengthens your sense of connection to your people. And so if uh, someone who shares your race or ethnicity or, or national heritage is persecuted or made fun of or belittled or wrongly imprisoned or accused, and it's because of that identity, if you share that, you feel that pain more so than other people, don't you? There's a renewed sense of connection to roots, to identity. Here in Jerusalem, as the crowd gathered to celebrate the identifying event of Israel's history, uh, that would have also fueled resentment of the Romans who were in charge, the Roman Empire. Obviously, there was no means of mass communication back in the day. There certainly wasn't any instant social messaging to connect with like-minded people who shared your same values and your same perspective. And so when at this annual feast with the city of Jerusalem overflowing, when large numbers of Jews gathered in one place, it made sense that messianic fever set in. A a Jewish hot-blooded young male would have been more likely then to look around and say to his buddies, we number these Roman soldiers 50 to 1, maybe 75 to 1. We can take them. This is the time. And on top of that, natural energy in the crowd Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11. And here in our passage, it references that again because, look, when you die and all of your friends and family and neighbors come to your funeral, they know you're dead. And Lazarus was raised by Jesus after four days in the tomb. There was no questioning of this miracle. It was astounding. And so all of that fed the people's hope that this was the one. This was the Messiah, and their expectation, their assumptions were the Messiah would be a warrior king who would deliver them, not from Egypt now, 
but from Rome. In that context, there's a donkey parade with Jesus in the middle of it. Imagine yourself a Jewish pilgrim. You've traveled from a far off uh, part of the Mediterranean world. You've heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. You haven't been able to set eyes on him. You're asking your friends, who is he? Why, is the question, why would you show up at this parade and shout, Hosanna, Lord, save us? Why would you add, according to Psalm 118 in quoting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel with your gaze right at this peasant figure from nowhere land in Nazareth? Let me suggest two possibilities. You're either there out of love for Jesus or you're there to get something out of him. The first is pure delight leading to worship. The second has selfish gain at its root. It's spirituality or religiosity wrapped around manipulation. So uh, to illustrate that, hypothetically speaking, you can organize a college ski weekend for all your friends out of sheer delight in the sport of skiing, out of delight in being under uh, God's creation and in making car, uh, perfect carves on that snow and fueling your need for speed. Or you can schedule a college ski weekend out of a devious strategy to get the pretty freshman girl from Vermont to come and hang out with you. Hypothetically speaking, still amazed that it worked. The first is motivation, is motivated out of delight in the sport, out of delight in the activity, out of delight in friendship and uh, in, in enjoying God's creation. The second values skiing not for its own sake, but for what benefits it might be able to bring down the line. And so in this context, you can show up at this parade for Jesus out of delight in who he is and be led to worship. God the Son, Redeemer and King, the Messiah of Israel, and you can trust him to wield his power and his wisdom in his perfect timing, in his perfect manner, or you can come and cheer him on because you want something. Delight leading to worship says, I know that you are Israel's anointed one. You are the Messiah. I give you my life. I trust you with my eternity. Selfish manipulation says, Jesus, don't let me down. You have my vote as long as you deliver what my people need. How many major political contributors fund a presidential campaign out of, of, of sheer respect for the character and philosophy of a candidate versus giving lots of money to gain access to power? to gain favors that'll lead to more opportunities for more money and more power. Some of you keep God at a distance. And you might think along these lines, well, life hasn't worked out the way I had planned and a good and generous and gracious God wouldn't allow these things to happen in my life and so you push him away. Or, Quite frankly, so far in life, things are working out just fine, and you think, God, I will call you when I need you, but I'm good. I don't need you. 
as if he's a, a vending machine of divine favors to help you out. What you're saying is, in either instance, I would cheer on Jesus if he served my interests. I would grant him my allegiance. I would follow him as Messiah if he helped me achieve my plans for my life. And if any of that resonates with you, then I'd ask you this question. Do you really know who Jesus is as he's been revealed to us in the divine word of God? Because Palm Sunday reveals him to be a dramatically different kind of king than we'd expect. In verse 13, the crowd starts shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And then Jesus gets on a young donkey, a beast of burden, in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. And the message is clear. People, I am a king, just not that kind of king. Yes, I'll bring freedom, but something far richer and more enduring than a few more decades or a few new decades of political freedom from Rome. And yes, I will lead, but it will be through servanthood and suffering and death. This is all on Sunday. And nothing else that happens the rest of the week is going to fit the people's expectations. Many are shouting Hosanna on Sunday. Many others, and I believe it's likely many more others, will be shouting crucify him on Friday. Why would you praise Jesus, secondly, if he's leading you towards death? Despite the donkey symbolism that quote-unquote, triumphal entry fuels the frenzy. People see Jesus as the revolutionary war hero they've been waiting for. And verse 19 gives us a little bit of a glimpse of this because the Pharisees, the ultra-conservative religious leaders, they get really worried that they're losing control of the people. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him, verse 19. And, and the funny thing is, they're sort of right because the whole world, at least the known world, has gathered in Jerusalem and some representatives of the whole world want to meet Jesus. In verse 21, Greeks tell Philip the apostle, we would like to see Jesus. These are Gentiles, likely converts to Judaism from a, a Gentile background. And at the festival, this man they've heard so much about is the one they want to meet. Whatever your ideas are about Jesus, is he a, a not-so-skilled politician? Is he a braveheart warrior? Is he merely a, a good moral teacher that had uh, a, a beneficial impact on society for a stretch? Or, or is he a personal genie to meet all of my needs? Maybe he is one among many gods, you ascribe deity to him, but you also ascribe deity to, to hundreds of thousands of other entities because one day one of them might come in handy. And so why not give him a little bit of attention? Why not send him a few prayers? Whatever your ideas are about Jesus, Palm Sunday leads us to toss those kinds of ideas aside into the rubble heap. And Palm Sunday leads us to listen to Jesus' own answer, which again is different than you'd expect. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man 
to be glorified. In John's gospel, the term our always refers to the end of Jesus' life. And early on in John's gospel, as, as early as John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana when he turns water into wine, the, the saying is, the hour, my, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet arrived. And he keeps saying that throughout John's gospel until now. Because in John chapter 12, the hour has come. The hour is now. It's time for glory. Now, what do we think of when we hear the word glory? We, we think of Super Bowl victory, snatched in the final seconds of the game. We, we think of V-Day to end the war. We think of the glory of Versailles or the glory of the Taj Mahal, some kind of architectural splendor. Glory evokes a sense of accomplishment and superlative and beauty and historicity. But in the Bible, glory means something very different. Glory means weightiness, weight. Not so much what your bathroom scale tells you in the morning, but substantialness. The opposite is what we uh, find in the book of Ecclesiastes. We, we looked at Ecclesiastes a couple of summers ago. In Ecclesiastes, the key word is hevel, meaningless, vanity of vanities. What's hevel? It's something that's here one moment and gone the next. Poof. It's a vapor. Glory is the opposite. Glory lasts. Glory doesn't lose its value. Glory is what is most significant about life. And Jesus says he is about to be glorified. Nothing is more significant. Nothing has greater impact on all of world history than the death of Jesus Christ and, of course, his subsequent rising from the grave. That's why he, Jesus tells this parable uh, in verse 24 and following about the, the seed-bearing plant that has to die in order to give life to other plants. That's why later in verse 32, he says, um, when I am lifted up from the earth, describing the kind of death he was going to die on a cross, I will draw all men to myself. It'll all look like humiliating defeat, but cross and substitute death on the cross because Jesus took our place, those are most glorious. Why? Because there's no greater problem that we have now and for eternity than our sin, which deserves judgment. There is no human solution to that greatest problem. Try as we might, we can, we can deny it, we can minimize it, we can pretend that before God, um, He is so gracious, He'll just accept us the way we are. That throws out the window God's justice. But if the Bible is true about anything, it gives us a sober, clear sense of the deadliness, the terminal nature, physical and spiritual nature of the disease of sin. We have no solution we can find, generate, produce in and of ourselves. But the death of Christ is most glorious because on the cross, Jesus stripped sin and death of all of their power. The cross is the death of death, as John Owen wrote centuries ago. So if you're really interested in who Jesus is, can I plead with you to, to not base your belief in Jesus on hard-to-believe doctrine, 
on obscure things you uh, might come across and, and just not be able to get over. Don't base your belief in Jesus on the behavior and sometimes the hypocrisy of Christian men and women and children because we are all sinful and we will fail to properly image the glory of the king in our lives to our shame. And, and please don't base your uh, concept of Jesus on the political talking head on the news who uh, supposedly represents Christianity, nor should you believe that every Christian voted for Trump. Jesus transcends politics. Jesus cannot be encapsulated um, with sound bites on the news. You need to hear Jesus' own answer to any seeker's questions, which go like this. Look at the cross. Look at my death. Look at the extent to which I will go to show my love for you. Trust that I have been sacrificed as your substitute. The whole world is going after Jesus, but they don't, they don't find a, a Messiah that they've come to expect or want to see because this is a Savior. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. This is a Savior, verse 23, who is glorified through suffering. This is a Savior, verse 24, who brings real and lasting life through death. Verse 25, who wins through losing. Verse 26, who leads and earns honor through servanthood. This is the kind of Savior, verse 27, as mind-blowing as this is, who says, being God the Son, my soul is troubled. Saul is troubled. He is the divine and human king. He is without limit. He is without sin. He has always enjoyed the perfect fellowship of Father and Holy Spirit from all eternity past, and his soul is troubled. Why? Because in the glorious cross, the Father will withdraw his love and leave the Son to suffer hell in the place of all who trust in Him. Why would you praise Jesus if He's leading you towards death? Thirdly, because following Him brings real freedom. When's the last time you heard uh, someone say, you know, I, I, I'm making too much money. I, I hope I plateau in my career because, you know, uh, I need to work harder and get paid less. Nobody says that kind of thing. When's the last time you heard somebody say, you know, this, this new phone, I hate it. I, have to, I used to love plugging in my phone every 30 minutes to make it through the day, and this one, this one lasts all day. We don't say that kind of thing. We, we don't say, you know, that was a, a great 5K. I came in last. You know, the last one I won. I don't like doing that kind of stuff. Slow is better. No. Why? Because we dream up. We want bigger, faster, better, easier all the time. And in this case, Jesus dreamed down. I, I don't mean that he went looking for failure and suffering. I don't mean that Jesus disdains excellence and somehow you're a better Christian if you screw up. None of that. But in setting his resolve to head towards Jerusalem for this Passover feast, Jesus had the goal of humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church. 
Paul, imitation of the Savior, learn to dream down. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Amen. And the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Oh. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He learned to dream down in imitation of the Savior. Here in verse 26, Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. What's going on here? The simple truth, if we put these things together, if you claim Christ, the name of Christ as a Christian, if you follow after Jesus as a disciple, then what servant is above his master? So often the values that drive the chase of the American dream are at complete odds with a life of humility and servanthood and other-centeredness, which, yes, involves dreaming down. Does it make any sense that following after Jesus would look like a life of ease, inconvenience, and comfort? No servant is above his master. Whatever your faith looks like, whatever your faith might not look like, this is true. Constantly dreaming up becomes an enslaving lifestyle because more will never be enough. Satisfaction will never come. Someone will always have more than you, which will trigger the great sin of pride, which compares oneself to another. Someone will always be prettier, smarter, faster, drive a nicer car. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey in his triumphal entry, he upended those worldly values that had even infected the entire religious establishment. It was no coincidence that the last week of his life overlapped with the Passover festival. The Jewish people in that week would have been thinking back to the ancient deliverance that God had provided from Egypt. He had... uh, brought the ten plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn. And the people in Jesus' time wanted a new kind of freedom from a foreign ruler, no longer Egypt, but now Rome. In the original Passover, freedom came through the sacrifice of a substitute lamb. The people were to to, uh, kill a lamb use its blood to to paint on the doorposts as a sign to the angel to skip or pass over that house and not bring judgment on it. And any house without the blood, not covered by the blood of the lamb, not signified that an animal, a lamb, has taken our place because our sins deserve death, if that sign of substitution, which is at the heart of the gospel, if that sign of blood, of a life given in payment for sin, is not there, death would have come to the households as it did to every Egyptian household. Salvation and life through the death of a substitute. So as first century Jerusalem prepared to sacrifice Passover lambs to commemorate that ancient deliverance, the perfect son of God, the ultimate and final Passover lamb, Jesus prepared himself to be that ultimate and final Passover lamb, to lay down his life, Jesus, himself a firstborn son. Faith in Jesus' blood. Faith that Jesus took our place. 
faith that Jesus died the death we should have died, that alone brings freedom. Believing that glory comes through suffering, life comes through death, power and victory come through willing defeat on the cross. This is what Jesus is showing us from Palm Sunday today through Good Friday that so often our thinking, our desires, our expectations of God are all backwards. You can't keep your life. You cannot find freedom and comfort and joy and ultimate belonging through your own strength. It can only come by faith that Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy and that Jesus offers us freedom and life through faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Triumphal entry? More like humiliating exit. This is the king who died the death we deserve to die after living the life we could not live because of our sin. He is worth losing your life in this world that you might gain it for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the last book of the Bible gives us a picture of you. And it should shock our sensibilities that the risen and ascended king at the beginning of the rest of eternity will look like a lamb that has been slain. So Lord, dismiss from our minds and hearts any image of you as a genie, any image of you as um, a conqueror who will take care of everything we don't like here and now and do our bidding. Give us, especially this week, Passion Week, Holy Week, give us a vivid sense, image, picture, conviction of you as lamb slain, of you with your blood shed in payment for our sin, that we might worship you knowing the end on Sunday morning.